Well, it's been quite an intense couple of weeks, hasn't it? Helena, that's an understatement. Almost like we've gone completely backwards in the fight for reproductive rights. Well, not almost like, that's that's just what's happened. Yeah, we have. It was in 1973 that abortion was made legal across the US after a landmark ruling referred to as Roe v. Wade. Now, two weeks ago, the US Supreme Court overturned that right. Half of all US states are expected to introduce new restrictions or total bans on abortion. Many already have. It means that many women and people who need abortions are having to travel further, often across state borders, and pay more. And as expected, these bans will affect the most marginalised. Poor women, queer people, women of colour and migrant women. Yeah, the news made me feel numb. To think that in a country which touts itself as a global leader in women's rights, men are sitting in a room legislating what women should and shouldn't do with their bodies. Like I, I have to admit hearing it, I just felt lucky that I live in the UK. Well, you say that, but I'm not sure how many people know that abortion is a crime in the UK. <laughs> Sorry, what do you mean? It's a little complicated, but bear with me. In England, Scotland and Wales, abortion isn't legal unless it's been signed off by two doctors and takes place within the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. So that's the 1967 Abortion Act. And the two doctors that give the permission, they have to decide that the pregnancy would hurt the pregnant person's physical or mental health more than if the pregnancy were terminated. Right, so if for example, someone buys abortion pills online because they can't get to a clinic, what could happen? Well, they could face life in prison. That's under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. And that's a law that was invented before women even had the right to vote. <laughs> oh, sh shocking. How, how did mm. that happen? But, okay, okay, I'm just reeling a bit from life in prison, but... In reality, does this actually happen? Like, are people getting prosecuted for abortions in the UK? Well, it may be more common than we think. I've been speaking to doctors, activists and leading abortion providers in the UK to find out just how restrictive the system here actually is. And I'll see you back in the studio with a very special guest to discuss everything around this media storm. The Supreme Court has now overturned Roe v. Wade. There are very strong emotions on either side of that debate. That's like murdering a person if you think of it. They think that, uh, that women have an absolute right to bodily autonomy. My personal opinion is that life begins at the point of conception and abortion is morally indefensible. You would make her have that baby. They celebrated what they call a win for life. Welcome to Media Storm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. I'm Helena Wadia. And I'm Matilda Mallinson. This week's investigation, abortion post Roe v. Wade. How safe are UK reproductive rights? A 24-year-old woman in England is facing a charge of procuring abortion. She ordered the abortion medication misoprotol online and took it at home in January of last year. She faces life imprisonment. Are you shocked? I was. 
Abortion is a crime in England, Scotland and Wales. Here's Catherine O'Brien, Associate Director at BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, a leading abortion care provider. I think that the vast majority of the public, I would say that until quite recently, probably the vast majority of members of parliament were not aware that um, the 1967 Abortion Act did not decriminalise abortion. It provided a legal defence for women and healthcare professionals so that it could be provided within a certain set of circumstances. However, if an abortion is performed or a woman ends their own pregnancy outside of the terms of the Abortion Act, so for example buys pills online because they can't get to a clinic, then women can still face up to life imprisonment for ending their own pregnancy from the moment that a fertilised egg implants into the womb. And I think that that is absolutely shocking to most people. You mentioned there perhaps a situation where somebody wouldn't be able to get to a clinic. What are some of the other situations that women find themselves in that they might be subject to this kind of law? Certainly um, if women aren't able to access NHS-funded services because of their um, immigration status, for example... That can mean that um, for these women, paying privately for in-clinic care is is too great a cost. It's too much of a barrier. So these might be women for whom um, online abortion medication may seem like their, their only option. Also for very vulnerable people who, you know, are, are afraid of either a partner finding out that they're pregnant or young women for whom, you know, they, they are anxious about their parents finding out that they're pregnant. This can lead to a circumstances in which people feel that accessing clinic services, um, is, is, is just not something they feel comfortable doing. So how often does real prosecution happen for people who seek abortions? In 2012, a woman was denied abortion care five weeks over the 24-week limit. By the time she gave herself an abortion using medication, she was 40 weeks pregnant. She was jailed for eight years. In 2016, a Northern Irish woman was given a suspended sentence for taking abortion pills that she had bought online after her housemate reported her to the police. Last year, a 15-year-old girl who had an unexplained early stillbirth was subjected to a long criminal investigation where her phone and laptop were seized and examined for evidence. Police dropped the case after tests concluded the baby had been stillborn because of natural causes. There are more cases. It's been found that police in England and Wales have recorded 67 cases of procuring an illegal abortion in the last 10 years. This legal framework is more restrictive than most European countries, and it seems that even taking the legal route comes with complications. Maya Oppenheim is the women's correspondent for The Independent. I didn't realise what a nightmare, you know, trying to get an abortion would be. I was shocked to find out how difficult it was. As a journalist that covers women's stories globally, she's very aware of the nuances of seeking an abortion in England. However, when Maya found out she was pregnant, she described trying to get an abortion as a nightmare. 
I was told I would have to wait three weeks for a phone consultation for an abortion. That I was staggered by. That would mean I would not have the actual abortion until a month after requesting the procedure. This would have left me with just a couple of weeks away from the 10-week cutoff point for a medical abortion, which involves taking pills rather than having to go under general anaesthetic for a surgical abortion. While obviously abortions are safe, they are far riskier, well not far riskier, but substantially riskier the longer you are on in your pregnancy. You know, I said the obvious to them, I said, you know, this is a time-sensitive, incredibly sensitive procedure and I'm not willing to wait that long. It was suggested that I would travel hundreds of miles to Doncaster or Liverpool for an in-person appointment. And you were based in London? Yeah, based in London. So, yeah, I didn't go to Liverpool or Doncaster. But where you did end up having to go was Kent. Were you shocked that you couldn't get an abortion as easily or as quickly where you live? Yeah, I was really shocked. It's not made clear by the NHS what a postcode lottery the UK is when it comes to abortion services and, you know, how far women are having to travel to have an abortion in this country. But yeah, so I knew it was a postcode lottery, but I thought it would be okay as I was in London. Now that sounds, you know horribly London centric it's not fair that you know I should have it should be easier for me to access an abortion than women in other parts of the country but I thought I'd be okay because I was in London but no I was panicking because I was thinking oh god I've got to continue with my job I've got to keep everything going and I'm pregnant and I don't want to be pregnant and this is feeling like torture you know getting progressively more pregnant for this baby that I do not want so I was feeling a bit panicky because I was feeling like I really want to get this abortion. When am I going to get it? And so, yeah, you feel quite helpless and overwhelmed. From, you know, the research I've been doing and from hearing your story, it just seems like there isn't a particular effort to make these services as good as they can be. Do you agree with that? And why do you think that is? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. When you kind of dig into looking at these services, you can just see how shambolic a lot of them are. And that is not the fault of hardworking, committed abortion providers. These are systemic, top-down issues. The government needs to address these issues. And I just think that the argument sometimes isn't framed in a fair way. Recent research by YouGov and MSI, that's a leading UK abortion provider, previously found nine in 10 UK adults think women should be able to access abortion services in Britain. They specifically identify as being pro-choice. There's a, there's a big consensus in this country that abortion and the right to choose, you know, is something that should be entrenched and it's a human right and it's it's essentially healthcare. It's not a criminal. It's not something that should be subject to criminalization. It's true. Several studies and polls have shown that the majority of the UK is pro-choice. Medical associations and human rights charities all back abortion and say abortion is healthcare. So why does the law remain unchanged? Here's Catherine from BPAS again. I would point to our current government. Unfortunately, we've had a number of of ministers who have not at all been supportive of abortion access. So, for example, Sajid Javid um, as health secretary did not support the continuation of pills by post and effectively wanted to recriminalise that. Um, When Sajid Javid was Home Secretary, he blocked moves to introduce buffer zones around clinics, which would have prevented anti-choice harassment of women in healthcare staff. We have Jacob Rees-Mogg. Are you completely opposed to abortion in all circumstances? Um, Yes, I am. Rape and incest? Sexual violence? I'm afraid so. Really? Life is sacrosanct. So what we have is at the top of government some really individuals that are so out of touch 
with public opinion on this and I would suggest many other issues. And it's very, very difficult to see how we move forward in a, in a progressive way when, as I say, there's so many people sitting around the table at the top that just have such archaic views on abortion. So does criminalisation in the UK come from archaic views upholding archaic laws? Only 10 years ago, in 2012, the then Health Secretary Andrew Lansley ordered a series of unannounced investigations on abortion clinics. They are described by the clinics as politically motivated raids, not to do with the quality of care that was being provided, but instead to comb through legal paperwork that could then be used to prosecute doctors. The hangover of the investigations is still felt today. Any doctor who provides an abortion outside the terms of the Act can also be criminalised. It potentially also has an effect on clinicians' willingness and, and, you know, to enter into this field because it's an area of healthcare that has such a unique um, criminal sanction attached to it. it. It does deter clinicians. Doctors for Choice is an organisation of doctors, nurses and midwives who campaign for abortion rights. I met with Catriona Renison from the group at a hospital in East London where she works as a junior doctor and asked her why she thinks doctors might not want to specialise in abortion care. The sort of controversy with which abortion is usually portrayed in the media often puts off doctors because it's seen as this kind of scary, controversial area of medicine that a lot of people who may otherwise become involved in abortion care see that and think... Why Why would I want to work in this area that might be subject to protests? And for a lot of people, that's just not worth it. In reality, the vast majority of the UK is pro-choice and it's an area of medicine that desperately needs more health professionals, not just doctors, to actively choose to be involved with. Because there's often a lot in the media, particularly when the role of doctors is brought up about conscientious objection, which is the right to opt out of providing abortion care for personal, religious or moral reasons. So any doctor at any point can opt out of providing an abortion? Yeah, the only time in which they can't is where the pregnant person's um, life is critically at stake. That's a pretty precarious situation for people who want to get abortions to be in, right? Mm -hmm. To think that at any point a doctor might say no just to, not to scare anybody, there is a duty in the law that if you are exercising your right to object, then you do need to refer the person on in a timely manner to a doctor who can fulfil the request. But that still puts the onus on the pregnant person to go to another appointment, maybe see a different doctor, maybe have to tell the story or the reasons why they want an abortion all over again to somebody else, which you know, depending on your reasons, may or may not be traumatic, may or may not be distressing or uncomfortable. Um, so it's an additional burden, additional hurdle to accessing care. Can only doctors provide abortions? Can nurses or midwives? The way the law is worded is they need two doctors to sign the HSA1 form, the form that authorises an abortion. That can only be done by doctors. And doctors have to prescribe the medication if it's a medication abortion. If it's a what we call a surgical abortion, then that again has to be doctors performing that. If the same procedure was being carried out for a miscarriage, a midwife would be able to perform that. But if it's carried out for an abortion, then a doctor has to do it. Why is that? It's the law. Um, so it's preventing our really skilled nurses and midwives from providing care 
for having more slots open so more people can get timely care because there's only so many doctors if you open it up if you allow our nur- skilled nurses and midwives to help participate more in abortion care you have better care for everybody but at the moment the law just doesn't allow that I know, I haven't mentioned Northern Ireland yet. And that's because technically, Northern Ireland has the most pro-abortion laws in the UK. In 2019, there was a historic vote there to decriminalise abortion. But... Legislation is nothing without the access and the services to match it. That's right. Despite the decriminalisation vote three years ago... The Northern Irish Health Minister, Robin Swan, has so far neglected to commission abortion services. Those seeking abortions are still forced to travel to England in order to terminate a pregnancy after 10 weeks. I caught up with Bethany Moore, a reproductive rights activist from Derry in Northern Ireland, about the reality of seeking abortion on the island. The abortion Northern Ireland regulations came in on the 31st of March 2020. So as you can imagine, there was something else kind of kicking off at that time in terms of, you know, um, health and health services and pressures on the health service. Um, And that was COVID. Our health minister, Robin Swan, he has been seen um, with anti-choice groups. He has, you know, attended different events and rallies and protests of, of theirs. So when he got the health seat, I'm sure he was horrified at you know covid but um as as convenient as a pandemic can ever be um it came at a good time for him because he was able to shift the focus on record 371 people have traveled during that first year of the pandemic from april 2020 to april 2021 from the north to england for abortion care um, that they should have had here and i think it's really really important to emphasize that this is at a time where everything was shutting down flights were stopping ferries were stopping people were getting put out of work people were being put on furlough like it is just horrendous um i think we have a lot of politicians here who are still happy to bury their head in the sand um, about abortion. It's imperative that I say about the the wonderful work that our healthcare providers have done here. Um, you know, it, it's not their fault that they've had to cease operations and different trusts at different stages of the year. Um, this is purely down to um, the lack of commission services, the lack of funding. How can we expect our healthcare workers to work with nothing, really? You know, our healthcare providers here are fantastic. We trust them. But when it comes to this one part of healthcare, suddenly we don't want to fund them, we don't want to support them, we don't want to help them, we don't want to trust them and trust their guidance and their judgment. So I think, you know, people here are really struggling to get that abortion care that we fought so hard for. So here's where we're left. Abortion decriminalised but no services in Northern Ireland and many services but criminalisation in England, Scotland and Wales. And now, post Roe v Wade, There are fears America's decision will empower organisations in the UK to call for greater restrictions on reproductive rights. Here in the UK, US anti-abortion organisations run, fund and support a range of different activities, including centres that deter people from choosing abortion and protests outside abortion clinics. Recent reports, as Sophia Smith-Gaylor, senior news reporter at Vice World News has found, also shows they are providing funding to anti-abortion speakers to go into UK schools. An organisation called Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child 
has over the past couple of years received over £70,000 from an anonymous US donor. What's interesting about this story is it's one of the first times really we've been able to identify a proper paper trail. What is a bit concerning about the source of this funding in particular is we know where the tide is going with the United States and SPUC, I'll call them, that's that's the acronym, SPUC, just like plenty of other anti-abortion groups in the UK right now, want to want to bring this discourse into the UK. Now, specifically, this US funding that they receive, this money is to be spent in two areas, in British schools and with British medical professionals. So that gives you a sense of who they are trying to target with this anti-abortion messaging. Theoretically, they aren't necessarily doing anything wrong. And if schools are saying, yes, please come in and talk to us, as some schools clearly are, who has the responsibility here and who has the authority to say definitively, should this kind of conversation be allowed to go unchallenged in my in my kids' classroom or in my students' classroom? If you haven't got lots of young people taught about things like their sexual and reproductive health rights and where they can access services, it really is a postcode lottery across the United Kingdom. Where does that put us to make informed choices about our healthcare? And where does that put us when we encounter inaccurate misinformation or half-truths in the wider world, off and online? So what does the future hold? America's decision having ramifications here? Or will the law catch up with public view? And if most people are pro-choice, how did the minority get to be so loud? That takes us back to the studio. Thanks for sticking around. Welcome back to the studio and to Media Storm, a news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. This week, we're looking at abortion, the situation in the UK and across the pond, and how reproductive rights are reported on. And with us is a very special guest. She is the founder and executive director of We Testify, an organization dedicated to the leadership and representation of people who have abortions. The writer and reproductive justice activist has been hailed as the Beyonce of abortion story. Telling. Plus, she's the co-author of Countering Abortion Splaining, out soon, so keep an eye open. It's Renee Bracey Sherman. Renee, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's both early and also I've been at the rally, so my voice is a little rough, so sorry to everyone. But I have to say, I love doing uh, UK interviews because I love the way British people say abortion. Does it make <laughs> it more palatable to talk about? No, it just it just feels so light and refreshing. I just I don't know. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't use the words light and refreshing for what this podcast <laughs> is going to talk about. But you know, yeah, laugh while you can. <laughs> Renee, in the first half of this episode, we hear about how abortion in the UK is actually still criminalised. And many people don't actually know that. But of course, what's dominating the news at the moment is the overturning of Roe versus Wade in America. It's a big question, but how did Roe v. Wade come to be overturned? What led to this moment? And how did you feel hearing the news? How I felt... The, the day that the decision came down, it was really, really difficult. I've been working on this issue for over a decade. And this is something that black and brown activists 
have been warning about for over a decade. We have said, please take this seriously. I think the short answer of how we got here is white supremacy and anti-Blackness and people putting abortion as a separate issue and ignoring it and acting as if it's not an urgent matter and it's not central to economic justice and racial justice. The first bans on abortion came actually out of the UK. And then, of course, you know, because ever since uh, after we all separated from y'all, we've been best friends ever since. And so we follow a lot of what you do. And so when the bans on abortion first came in the UK in the very early 1800s, the United States started enacting some as well. And it was about the fear of non-white immigrants coming to the United States and Black people starting to become free because we were starting to end slavery. And so white people in power were afraid that Black and brown people were coming in and were going to take their political power. And so they started enacting abortion bans, not to control Black and brown people, but to control white women because they wanted to make sure that they continued to have babies and that they would be able to rule and keep their power by population. Renee, this this demographic analysis of history you're giving us, this demographic analysis of modern politics you're giving us, I feel like this is something we're only starting to talk about enough now. And it's led me cynically to wonder about the shockwaves that the overturning of Roe versus Wade has sent around the world. You know, people are really, really disturbed and outraged. But other modern controversies about restricted bodily autonomy haven't had such a response. There have been various incidents of forced sterilization, particularly of black and brown women continuing under row that haven't caused such controversy. A recent example being immigrant women in an ICE detention facility in 2020. You know, trans people have their bodily autonomy heavily restricted all over the US, UK and beyond. So do you think that one factor in the scale of the outrage is that this scandal will restrict bodily autonomy even for the most privileged white cisgender American women? White women in the United States love to look to El Salvador or other places in Latin America saying, how could this happen? They forget that these things are actually already happening in the United States and they've been happening to black and brown people. They just haven't paid attention. And I, I know that people think, well, white women, wealthy women will always be able to get abortions. No, because they are going to go for a national ban. So it is actually going to impact all of us. And that is where I think people need to understand how much white supremacy, if they come for me at night, they're going to come for you in the morning. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about how abortion is framed in the mainstream media. A big question is, Is abortion reported on as more controversial than it actually is? In the UK, 9 out of 10 people are pro-abortion. By age 45, nearly one third of all women in the United States will have had an abortion. Do articles fail to mention how common abortion is and how broad the support is for it? I mean, Renee, you coined the phrase, everyone loves someone who had an abortion. Yeah, I mean, this is what my work centers around. Abortion is extremely common and it's actually extremely popular. Pick any president, abortion is more popular than it. (laughs) Over 80% of the American public believes abortion should be legal. Can you just explain that that statistic over 80% of the US population think abortion should be legal? Where's that data coming from? Because that is not the impression that we would get from the the 50-50 debate we're seeing in the media. 
Well, that's what's wild about it, right? So so on Fox News, they asked their viewers, did they want Roe to be overturned? And over half said no. Like, this is the Trump TV station. And still, we need a pro-life and a pro-choice voice discussing this debate on every show. As if it's a 50-50. You'll notice the, the polling. They asked the question, should abortion be legal in, and then they'll say, no cases, only a few cases, some cases, most cases. A good, like, usually... 50, 60% say most cases. And then the other 20, 30% is made up from like those people that are saying some cases. So that's where it's like the you get the majority, right? But what I think is frustrating, the majority of this country doesn't understand who has abortions and why. Mm. They think that every abortion is either somebody being slutty or a 14-year-old being raped. There's like nothing in the middle. And they also have a lot of judgment around those of us who are just like slutty, which shout out to us. It's fine. Like, it's okay. <laughs> I run an organization with people who've had abortions. We share our stories. And the whole goal was to change the way we're portrayed in the news. Because when I started doing this work a decade ago, I would watch the news. I'd read articles. And it was always people talking about abortion. And no one was saying that they had one. What would it look like if we changed the conversation to include the stories of people who have abortions? And here's how my story is actually going to challenge the preconceived notions that you have about abortion, the stereotypes and stigma that the anti-abortion movement has pushed. The fact that the majority of characters on television and film that have abortions are white, they're young, they're teenagers. The majority of people who have abortions in real life are in their 20s. They already have children. They're people of color and they're poor. You're getting this this misinformation even through well-meaning depictions. And so that's what my work focuses on is changing that conversation. We love that. And that's why we we have you here because of what you do at We Testify. And, and what we do at MediaStorm is try and center lived experience voices in the conversation. And with abortion, the conversation is so skewed, it seems, away from the actual experience of abortion, the experience of choice, away from lived experience and towards politics. You know, is this a conversation that should have fewer political voices and more medical voices and more lived experience voices? To me, it feels really simple. You would never put someone who is a doctor on a heart surgery up in a debate with someone who's literally never opened a (laughs) medical textbook. And yet that is what happens constantly. The majority of the of the episodes we've done on these minority groups, they all have some form of that both sides narrative. I have to tell the story. I was working at a national newspaper here in the UK and I wrote a piece and created a video about these amazing activists who help get women and people who need abortions safely into the clinics. And they shield them from anti-abortion protesters outside the clinics. This is in America, calling them murderers and sinners, etc. These activists, they, they were really young. They were teenagers and they used TikTok in a really innovative way to do this. When I submitted this story, I got told I had to get the other side. And they said, no, you must interview these anti-abortionists who are calling women murderers and whores. And you must interview them and get their side and interview them for the same amount of time that you interviewed these activists. And I refused and the piece was pulled. But if I was at that time a younger, less experienced journalist, maybe I would have been forced to include that side. And then the problem is then medical voices, people with lived experience, they often get pushed aside for this both sides debate. (laughs) I recently had 
uh, debate with a um, media outlet in the United States. They're a huge um, morning television show. They wanted to put someone who's had an abortion up against someone who had an abortion and regretted their abortion, which I want to be clear. I believe that people have abortions, whether they regret them or not, are able to share their stories. Um, that's their experience. But I explained to them in the way they were planning to do it, it's just not accurate. It makes it look like it's 50-50. And we actually have data and it's 97 to three. Even in that 3% of people who regret their abortions, it's not necessarily that they still want it to be illegal. So really it's like 99 to one. And so you're positioning it as 50-50 and that's actually just bad journalism. Absolutely. It's not just in media. It goes as far as the halls of Congress because in the middle of May after the leak, there was a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee in our Congress. And so one of the storytellers that I work with testified about having an abortion and then we had an abortion provider The third witness that sat at the table in the room was the president of a very prominent anti-abortion organization. She testified that she believes that there's an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. And when they get rid of the products of conception, like the medical waste, the way you would any blood, tissue, whatever, anything else, like any hospital, um, sometimes they go to incinerators because it's biohazard. She believes that incinerator company that they that that a lot of hospitals in the country use that is being used to power the lampposts in Washington DC. I wish I was making this up. Bodies thrown in medical waste bins and in places like Washington DC burned to power the lights of the city's homes and streets. Let that image sink in with you for a moment. The next time you turn on the light Think of the incinerators. And so this is the type of person who gets quoted equally in equal amount of time as I do. Someone who's had an abortion, who actually understands the medical aspect of it. Yeah, this is this is the fallacy in the mainstream media of what it means to get both sides of the story. Both sides means both political sides. The tick box exercise of impartiality in the media and scarily apparently in Congress is the left side and the right side. But not everything is a political issue. And that's what Helena and Renee, you've both just pointed to with those pretty disturbing examples, is that actually maybe getting all sides of the story as a journalist on abortion means the side of someone who's undergone abortion, the side of someone who is a medical expert, the side of a social worker, but not necessarily the left side and the right side. I think the this hyper-politicization of abortion does often mean that the language that reporters use, um, it means that this kind of anti-choice rhetoric does find its way into articles. And a lot of anti-choice language is very emotive. For example, unborn children, or they call fetuses babies. Honestly, I think even the term pro-life is sneakily emotive. Like, abortion is almost always framed as a debate between pro-life and pro-choice. But the term pro-life when you're talking about abortion is quite frankly bullshit because if you were really pro-life right you'd introduce gun safety laws so children literally stop dying in schools or you would have universal health care or you would take action on climate change which 
probably is going to wipe out a lot of children in the future. Um, or you'd make childcare affordable. Or when there was a shortage of baby formula, you would fix that. Or you would implement consistent free school meals, which was a big topic uh, here in the UK. Um, you'd address the suicide crisis in the trans community and make their lives better. So I would really, really urge mainstream news media outlets to not use the term pro-life without quotation marks around it or instead to call it call it what it is like call it anti-abortion call it anti-choice the point of them using pro-life is because what is the opposite of pro-life it's anti-life as if we somehow hate life and they will say that they'll be like they hate life they're trying to stop life so yeah, stop calling them pro-life, but also ask them the follow-up questions. What does it mean to make something illegal? What are the punishments that you support for people who have abortions? They don't do anything to make sure people have safe pregnancies. And they also do nothing about the fact that there are so many pregnant people in jail in the United States right now who are shackled during labor. There's no plan. To, to increase access to food for poor families. That hearing I mentioned where the woman went on and on about fetuses <laughs> lighting the lampposts, that hearing, the members of Congress badgered the abortion provider witness and the abortion storyteller witness and the legal witnesses for hours. Right after that hearing, they went to go vote on um, a bill that would increase the supply of baby formula. Every single one of them voted no. Time now to look at some of the recent headlines on the topic of abortion and see what the media could be doing better. Well, this one made us laugh from Gloucestershire Live. Meghan Markle criticized for not commenting on US abortion row. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> literally, sorry, literally any excuse. I mean, this is... This is a really good example of how the media will take any trending issue, no matter how serious or grave a story it is, and use it as a bandwagon to peddle the same clickbait tabloid trash, basically appropriating a global human rights crisis for easy money and another cheap shot at Meghan Markle. Also, she has actually spoken out now about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but that's almost not the point. The wider issue articles like these point to is, do we expect every celebrity or public figure to talk about abortion or any human rights topic making headlines? So, you know, since the Supreme Court decision, a lot of celebrities and public figures have spoken out about having abortions, and that's great, but... Does it put too much pressure on people who have had abortions to tell their stories? I actually love this example because um, Meghan Markle was like just yelled at when Ireland legalized abortion and she was overheard making a comment that it was good. And so, of course, she didn't say anything because you guys yell at her for wearing pants outside of the house. Okay. Like, yeah, leave that girl be. Also, she already talked about having a miscarriage, which is also known as a spontaneous abortion. And you guys yelled at her for that, too. So, yeah, she didn't say anything. Good for her. Go ahead. Take care of your babies. Enjoy your life. Like, she's dealt with a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, to your question about celebrities, 
obviously I would love for more celebrities to speak out and talk about it. And I think it really does change the conversation when celebrities share that they had an abortion. I knew I could have an abortion and felt like I could do it because I knew the rapper Lil' Kim had had an abortion. That felt important to me, right? But celebrities are humans and they also deserve space to grieve. When the decision came down, there was international outlets that called me within minutes of it coming down and I was crying and I was throwing up and they were like, hi, Renee, do you have a comment? Can you come on XYZ UK news? Um, and I, and I'm like crying and I was like, no, I, I can't right now. Like, and they were like, oh, oh, sorry. This must be hard on you. Yes. Like we deserve that space. But yes, I would love to see more celebs use their platforms to talk about it, raise money for abortion funds and to lobby Congress to create change. Yeah, I, I'm going to just flip that coin a little bit because, and I agree in this context, that platform can be really powerful. But I also think when we are obsessed with knowing a celebrity's opinion on everything, that can be really misguided because celebrities don't necessarily know that much about anything. And suddenly the, the place on the panel isn't going to the person with lived experience or the person with professional expertise. It's going to some goddamn celebrity, oftentimes who is appropriating a crisis for their own image. And so I think we do have to be really careful with expecting celebrities to be the moral paragons that we want in society. Let's save some space for the voices that actually should have weight in the conversation too. Right. And I think that's where what I mean by they can use their platform, right? They can use their platform to say, look, the people you should follow are these people. This is, yes, I had an abortion and I was lucky. My clinic was over here and it was easy. I could afford it, but most people can't, right? Go follow these people. And so that's what feels important to me is how do you use your platform? Yeah, exactly. Don't have to be a voice for the voiceless. Just have to give them your give amazing, the mic. expensive mic. And uh, Meghan Markle, if you're listening, you are our dream media storm guest. So please get in touch. <laughs> this is a Meghan Markle stan account. Over there. <laughs> Renee Bracey Sherman, thank you so much for joining us on Media Storm. Before you go... Where can people follow you and do you have anything to plug or shout out? Well, first, I just want to say thanks for having me. Um, it was a really wonderful conversation. Uh, if you've had an abortion and you're listening to this, please know that you're loved and supported. Every person, every single one of us loves someone who's had an abortion. And so we need to change the conversation. Folks can follow my organization, We Testify, um, online, wetestify.org. Um, we testify on Facebook and Instagram and the at abortion stories on Twitter. And then of course you can follow me. I'm an avid Twitterer. It's R Bracy Sherman on Twitter. Um, and Renee Bracy Sherman on Facebook and Instagram. Though Facebook is my least favorite, so there's no point in following me there. But you know, donate to your local abortion fund, talk about your abortion, um, talk about what's happening. Really just just show up with love and support for people having abortions. That's all I ask. Thank you for listening. If you can't wait until the next episode to hear our voices, then head over to our feed, All the Guilty Feminists, to catch our new mini-series, This Is How You Do It, uplifting changemakers fighting for social justice. And we'll be back on the 21st of July with a new episode about something that is so rarely talked about, it might seem shocking to some listeners. It's about paedophilia that is never acted on, the clinical disorder rather than the criminal act which affects millions of people in the world from puberty. We're looking at a severe lack of research and healthcare policy 
and our resulting failure to protect children. Follow MediaStorm wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get access to new episodes as soon as they drop. If you like what you hear, share this episode with someone and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps more people discover the podcast and our aim is to have as many people as possible hear these voices. You can also follow us on social media at Matilda Mel, at Helena Wadia and follow the show via at MediaStormPod. Get in touch and let us know what you'd like us to cover or who you'd like us to speak to. MediaStorm, an award-winning podcast from the House of the Guilty Feminist is part of the Acast Creator Network. It is produced by Tom Selinski and Deborah Francis-White. The music is by Sam Fire.